Right on. So we're in the last week, the fourth week of our series called What's the Point? And we've been asking the questions for the last couple of weeks. What is the meaning of it all? What is the meaning of, of life? I mean, really, we solved it. We, this last week, we'll be done. We solved the meaning of life. <laughs> but uh, no, it's the age-old question. I mean, do I have purpose? What is this about? Why am I here? What does it mean? And so first week, we talked about you're meant to be. God cares about you and has a plan for you. And the second week, we talked about the Bible says without vision, people perish. And so it's important for us to have dreams. It's important for us to have passions because one translation of that says, without vision, people cease to exist. And there's people all over our, our, our communities that, man, they're just going through the motions in life. They have no vision. Really, they're ceasing to exist. And, uh, and so then in last week, we talked about uh, Nate Marielke was with us and he preached on, uh, man, we were created to be people who worship, who identify that, you know, we have a God and, and he cares for us and we're a son and a daughter of him. And so this week, I want to talk about what is the point? Even, you know, what is the point of Easter? What is the point of all of this? Because the truth is, the scripture says right here in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, speaking of being raised from the dead, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. So the point of Easter, the point of it all is that Jesus has to have been resurrected. You know, everything that happened up to it, everything that led up to it. But if he didn't walk out of that tomb, if there was no resurrection, it was useless. It was all for nothing because everything was about a resurrected king taking his place over death in the grave. Amen. So what's the point and how can we know confidently that that happened? If the scripture is saying, hey, it's all useless. If we can't prove it, if we don't know, if, it, if we're not confident, then it's all useless then it's really important for us to take a look at the proofs of the resurrection, the facts about what we believe. And so today we're going to kind of dig in at this whole idea of Christianity and being Christ followers and in the resurrection, Easter, what we believe. Do you know that no other time, no other time in a year will this many people gather to honor and to celebrate and to acknowledge another person? It's not like, oh, you have Jesus over here, and then you have this other thing over here, and it, this is the biggest. This is the time of the year where the statistics tell us that one out of every three people on our planet are going to pause. Almost three billion people are going to stop and, and celebrate Easter and the resurrection. You know, a lot of people say, well, I don't know why you're a Christian, you know that's a book of fairy tales and there's so many copies of it. It can't be believed. And we're going to take a look at that, but they just say, you know, it's made up and it's not true. It's not. How is it that after 2000 years, almost 3 billion people are still celebrating this historical, which you heard me what I say earlier, but this event that took place, this life-changing event, I put a picture on my Facebook today that says literally it was the greatest victory in history. There's nothing that could be better than what Jesus did when he walked out of that tomb. Amen. And here's the thing about Christianity. It's not, some might say, well, I don't know. You know, it's yes, Christians are being persecuted. And we're one of the most persecuted people groups, I believe that are out there right now, but it's also growing faster than it ever has. Because if you look at the new Testament too, the more persecuted they were, the faster they grew. And so I'm, we're actually doing a series next month called Stay Positive. I feel great about where Christianity is headed. I feel great about where the kingdom is headed because you oppress us more, we're gonna grow more. Somebody say amen. That's just how Jesus does it. And so don't miss next month, Stay Positive. That was a free promo commercial. But, um, 
But anyway, so here's the deal with it. No other time has anybody come together like this. And they say three, almost 3 billion people will celebrate Easter. Do you know the numbers in comparison, like if I were to tell you, hey, when, when else does the world sort of stop and culminate to one thing? A lot of people would say, well, the Super Bowl, you know, the Super Bowl, everybody watches the Super Bowl at the same time. Well, the largest rated Super Bowl in history is only 115 million people. But I'm talking about almost 3 billion people. When the Olympics are on and the world watches, I think that's what NBC says. It's like the Olympics, the world is watching. That only gets up to about 225 million people, they say. It doesn't even come close to the billions that are going to stop and say, hey, this is a thing. And what's fascinating to me about that is imagine... If I were to say to all of you, and nobody in the first service could say it, and you don't, you don't have to shout it out, but I'm just saying, imagine if I came to you and said, hey, tell me about your, tell me the stories of your great-grandfather from 200 years ago. Your family probably doesn't know him. I mean, those stories have gone away. Does that make them never happen? They're fairy tales, they're myths, they're not a thing. So what's amazing about the story of Jesus and what we know about the, two, the, 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 the New Testament in the gospels is that think about that. In our culture where just 200 years ago, we've already forgotten family values. Imagine how now over 2000 years later, this thing is not only still in our face, if you will, but it's growing. It's not a fairy tale. It's something powerful. It's something that you can experience. There's people that say, well, I've felt God and I've felt God. I've felt a presence of God. But then there's also people that have like, I've taken the principles of the Bible and I've applied them to my life and I've seen the fruit of God in my life. You can experience God who is still alive, amen? Whether through practical application or you feel him or you sense him or maybe you've had a life experience, car crash, whatever, where you've now had this acknowledgement of like, hey, there's something bigger going on. And so that's uh, just amazing. I mean, that in itself is enough that after 2,000 years, this thing not only still is around, but it's still growing. What's brilliant, what's amazing about it is that it started, all of this started with numbers like this, Jesus and 12 disciples. And now you're to almost 3 billion people celebrating. And then he grew into numbers of 120. But do you know that Jesus was never selling out stadiums of 200,000? because of the population and just the thing. There was never these mass. So to think about that, 12 to 120 to other, but to get to this type population, it's not like they just scored on like a great social media campaign. You know, Peter's like, hey, you got to come see this thing. And then, you know, Tom Benz, the other guy, like, well, I think we should do MySpace. He's like, no, I think we should do Facebook. And then the other one lost out. And then, you know, but they didn't just strike it in some great, brilliant. As a matter of fact, a lot of how it grew was hidden in homes and persecuted and it grew. And so it's not like they were just the most brilliant marketing campaign. It's, it's because it's real. Amen. Think about this. Right now, the church population is larger. The population of Christians is larger than China. The population of church is also larger than Europe. The population of church is also larger than the United States. As a matter of fact, the population of Christianity is larger than all three of those populations combined. It's not a myth and a fairy tale and a thing that's going away. It is a real, proven, historical, alive thing. Amen? And so it's just incredible to see how it's lived on. So we're going to take a look at a couple things. What's amazing, too, for me is that Jesus, he never wrote anything down. You see one part in the scripture where he wrote in, in, in the ground. You know, they were, uh, you know, coming after this one woman, and, and he goes to this place, and he writes on the ground, but no one knows what it says. 
But it's not like Jesus sat down and penned this great strategy and gave you this whole thing of like, here's your thing. But do you know that there are more books written about Jesus than any other human in human history? Do you know that Jesus, uh, he never sat down and like made art and showed how to do statues and did all this thing. But do you know that there's more statues and art for Jesus than there is any other human in human history? Do you know that there are more buildings and architect made for Jesus than there is any other person in all of human history? Over a myth? Over a fairy tale? Over something that over 2,000 years we like couldn't figure out? No, it's because it's real and there's truth to it. And people experience that every single day. Amen? The amazing thing about Jesus is he never traveled more than 200 miles in his lifetime. And in his travel, he never traveled more than 200 miles. But now his message is worldwide. Why? Because the good news is alive. The gospels, the good news, what Jesus said, it's a thing and it's alive and it's not going away. Amen? Our history is literally split by the resurrection. Even atheists have to acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus because every child born, when you put a birth date, it's acknowledged by BC and AD. Every person born acknowledges the resurrection of Jesus. Whether you choose to or not, it's a real thing. And so I take a look at uh, what's so fun is we'll go back into the Old Testament to look at the proofs that what's the point? You know, the point is this is a thing. If you know what I'm saying, like this is a, it's like probably bad English or whatever. It's like, this is a thing. But I lived in North Carolina, so I can do that. This is a thing. They, uh, North Carolina taught me a lot of things. And the one thing that I learned is that all our signs here, uh, they're wrong for Walmart. Uh, our stores just say Walmart, but it's actually the Walmart. So it's like, hey, I'm going down there to the Walmart. Uh, we're from, my wife's from Spring Lake. I'm from Hudsonville, Zealand area. And, uh, and so I met some people and I'm kind of into NASCAR. And um, especially in its heyday, this was eight years ago when we moved to North Carolina, which is the capital of NASCAR racing. And so uh, someone in the church there that we were with, <laughs> um, they heard I was a Dale Earnhardt Jr. fan. And so I'm not kidding you. I get a call in the first couple months of being in North Carolina, and one of the pastors there, um, if you're listening, Joey Mahaffey, hey, buddy, um, he, uh, he calls me, and he's really excited because they got these T-shirts in a cup uh, of NASCAR racing, and so it's like a cup, and I'm about ready to offend some NASCAR people, <laughs> but anyway, so they put this T-shirt in a cup, and I get this call, and I'm new to the church, and so I'm thinking like, oh, one of the pastors are calling me. This is going to be spiritual. He's like, hey, man. Down here at the Walmart, they got the junior things in a cup. You want me to get you one of those? I was like, we I was like, said to Jess, like, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is like, this is a thing. <laughs> but anyway, that literally has nothing to do with my sermon. And we're going to edit that out. <laughs> I was kidding. But uh, so this is where we were. So Old Testament, like we're, we're looking at like the point is, this is a thing. This is a truth. This isn't going anywhere. And so when you take a look at the Old Testament, the New Testament is the Gospels. Jesus is on the scene. It's a, test, it's a, it's a writing of him and his life and the encounters. And, but back in the Old Testament in 450 BC, there are these prophecies given by the Old Testament prophets. And they lay out about the Messiah and some things that need to be in order for the Messiah. They prophesy about the Messiah that, hey, uh, when he comes, this, 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 all of these things will take place in the Messiah. And so this is 450 BC, and there's proofs of these prophecies that even atheists don't argue. So this is an unarguable point that these prophecies are legit and that they, you'll see, took place. 
And what's awesome about these is it's not like a real prediction. I said it in first service, like if two football teams were going to play each other, you could know enough about the scenario that you would be like, I'm prophesying that that team's going to run the ball because that team, these writers, it was so early from when the crucifixion was actually going to take place for them to prophesy or predict, if you will, these type scenarios, there was no way for them to know. In the Roman Empire, I mean, they were so detailed about law and even crucifixions. Uh, there was one thing that says, you know, Jesus got 39 lashes or whips on his back because if you actually did 40, or 40 was the law, and if you did more than that, then you were to have to get the same thing because of a bunch of laws. So extremely detailed Roman Empire. For these guys to even nail any of this is like insane. They couldn't have predicted a formula. It was all by God. And so here are some of the things. One thing they said was he was to be born of a virgin. Like right out of the gate. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, how does that? So, you know, so born of a virgin and this whole thing and born in Bethlehem and preceded by a forerunner, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. They were specific about the amount that he was going to be portrayed for. Uh, spat on and struck. Like, it wasn't like, oh, we know when they do crucifixion, they do this spitting thing. No. Just a totally ridiculous thing. Crucified with other prisoners, pierced through his hands and feet, pierced in his side. Not all people who were crucified actually got punctured on their side, but Jesus did. And so uh, they prophesied how soldiers would gamble for his clothing, how he would be buried in a rich man's tomb and how he would be resurrected. What's amazing about just eight of the prophecies, if we took just eight, they did a study on the actual, all of this come into place. If you took just eight of them, it would be one in 1017 to the 1017th power. So that's one in one with 17 zeros behind it for this to come true. Now, here's another statistic that they did. They said the odds of these being true would be if I were to take Andy and we were to go to Texas and I were to take uh, silver coins, silver dollar coins, and I were to spread them across all of Texas, all of Texas, two feet deep, so the odds of, of all of this coming true, I'm taking Andy to Texas, silver dollars, two feet deep, and I'm marking one of them with an X. And then I'm shuffling them all up again. And he's not watching. I shuffle them all up. So now that means this coin could be buried. It's not like luckily he walks along and pulls one from the top. It could be buried under two feet worth of coins. It would be like him walking into Texas and pulling on his first try that exact coin. That's the statistical for all of these things to fall in place based on all the things that took place. This is literally what it looks like. They say that there were 60 prophecies fulfilled with 270 ramifications all through these prophets that took place that even atheists don't argue existed because they can't argue that he was born in Bethlehem. They can't argue that he was crucified. They can't argue everything that we just mentioned that we know to be true. Unbelievable that the truths are here and that this is a thing. And the point is we have confidence that our faith isn't useless. Our gathering together isn't useless because he did rise. Somebody say amen. Another thing we look at is the Bible. A lot of people love to come at the Bible. Well, there's too many copies of it made and it's not accurate. But there's two things that scholars do. They have a test for accuracy of literature. And uh, there's two ways that we look at evidence and we still do it today. One is we look at evidence. So we come to the scene and we take a look at evidence, physical evidence. We look at these things and we go, that's one way. The other is witnesses. We go and we say, okay, what are the witnesses saying? So that's literally how we determine a crime scene right now. And so you can also do that in Jesus and in the gospels. 
But the first thing is the Bible. Skeptics say that the Bible we read today is nowhere near was actually written and that it can't be trusted because uh, of it, or accurate because of its description in history. But the ancient literature's tests say this, that our most proven, if you will, historical literature that we even teach in our schools now, let's see how those compare to the Bible. So there's this thing called an ancient literature test, and this is how they do it. We take the original manuscripts from ancient literature, literature such as Plato, Aristotle, and Caesar, and we compare them by copies. So we'll take a look at this here in a minute. Uh, so here's how this works. Here's how they do the test on ancient literature. They take a look at the number of copies and how closely the copy was made to the original. So right here, Homer, in our schools right now today, we consider that to be historically true, 100% proven, and you can see it was written in 900 BC, and they say the first earliest copy of it was about 400 BC, so 500 years later, some actually argue maybe 1,000 years later, and the number of copies, so remember we're looking at how far from when the original to how many copies it has. So the gap between it, how many copies. And now remember, we consider Homer accurate. There is nobody saying, hey, about the Homer stuff, that that's a fantasy and that's not true and we can't count it. We're counting that as accurate ancient literature. So 600, now put up the one in the Bible. To put up the one in the Bible, you see that it was written after death between uh, 40 years and 100 years. And the first earliest copy was just 25 years later. So look at that compared to the other one. And so the time span in years is just eight to 30 years. And then look at the number of copies. Just absolutely blows away anybody else. Scholars say this, that the Bible is unparalleled in comparison to any other book. Scholars say the, the ancient literature credibility of the Bible, scholars say it sits in a category of its own. The Bible is so accurate that it sits in a category of its own. So anyone says, oh, it's been... It just doesn't even compare to anything else out there. One of the people, they say this. They say that since the earliest copy was being circulated, here's one's proof that we have. Since the earliest copy of the original was circulated just 25 years after Jesus, it means that people were still alive when these stories were being talked about and when these copies were being made. And one example given is that big thing in that time is that they would get up in public and in squares and they would read these scriptures. They would get out in the open air and they would read them. So if somebody was walking by and the story about water into wine was not true, people were still alive to be like, well, wait a minute. I was at that wedding. That never happened. And they could literally call out these other copies. Again, just giving more credibility to the copies of these manuscripts, just absolutely incredible. And so it's another way, another thing when the copies were made, they were made by Talmudists. And these people are people that believed every single letter they put down and every word they put down was the literal word of God. And so these guys weren't just hired people to make copies. These were people who at their core believed these are the words of God. As a matter of fact, they counted every letter, every syllable, every word, every paragraph to ensure accuracy. They would not even answer a king if they were writing the name of God. In the Old Testament, the original uh, first books of the Bible was called the Torah, and to them, it meant the way, literally. The, these words, this was the way of life to them. So they wouldn't have made any changes because it was literally who they are. Another great thing that we have is the tomb evidence. If we're talking about what's the point and what's the purpose and can we believe this, uh, the tomb gives us incredible evidence 
to the fact that this is a thing, that this is legit. There's four gospel accounts, and they don't contradict each other about the resurrection in the tomb. The first thing is the stone being moved. They say that probably the first thing the women would have noticed is that the stone was not covering the tomb. Historians believe that the stone could have weighed close to a ton and could not be moved by less than several men using a lever in a pulley system. It was rolled down into a groove, and so it was kept in a groove type thing. So it wasn't just sitting in a way that maybe it could have fallen. It was in a groove system bracing it. So a lever would have had to been lodged under the stone and moved by several men using considerable amount of weight. When the women showed up at the stone and it was gone, Matthew's account tells us that God moved the stone via angel and via earthquake. And when I was studying all this out, I really felt God was speaking to me that there's some people here that you are in a place where like, you feel like you're in your tomb. You feel like you've been wrapped up in your grave clothes. There's no way out. And you feel like there's an earthquake happening and you're actually scared of the earthquake. Oh, there's this earthquake and there's this rumbling going on. But I just want you to know that that's actually God sending an angel to get you out of your grave. Amen. And so don't be afraid of the earthquake. Don't be in a place where you're, oh, I don't know about this thing. I don't know. God's going to do a work and what's great. You're going to come out better. You're going to come out better than you went in. You're going to come set free. You're going to take grave clothes off. You're going to be in a position where you come out better than you went in. Amen? Okay, so back to this. So the stone, the theory of just this huge stone, another thing that we're taught is these were people of the land, which means people paid attention to what was taking place outside. It's not like us where we go into a building and we work and we don't pay much attention to the land. People knew who were on the lakes. People knew who were in the fields. People knew what was going on. So if all of a sudden in this area, a one-ton stone is like hooked up to some four-wheelers going across the field, they'd be like, what's going on with the one? It would have been noticed. It would have been a big thing. So this whole conspiracy theory of they got guys together and they took this, it's just not plausible. It would have been called out. Amen? So the stone is one thing. Another thing is the seriousness in which the stone was kept by the Roman guards. So they put a seal on it and it was protected by the Roman guard 24-7 by at least four men. They took turns sleeping to protect the tomb. If they failed their duty, they were executed sometimes by burning a fire. Burning in fire started with their military clothes. The tomb is also sealed with a Roman seal, which stood for power and authority of the Roman Empire. It was a rope put over the stone connected to the tomb like a big X to break this seal by anybody. So some prankster comes in to break the seal. Uh, it literally meant crucifixion. Uh, upside down crucifixion if you broke the seal. The seal was broken, the guards were gone, and the Bible says that they ran in fear of the angel. And so, again, literally, the Roman Empire cared very much. You got to remember, they, they crucified this guy. They put him on a trial without much evidence. It's not like, hey, we finally got rid of this guy. It's all over. Many people were paying attention to what was happening to the Messiah in this tomb. It's not like a few people could get together and make the... No, it was a huge thing. And so the Roman Empire, they had all of this behind it. Another real uh, thing that just really proves how this can't be just some made-up hero story by the disciples to make them look good. They were either the stupidest people you've ever met, or I'm not really sure, but here's what they wouldn't have done. So they're making up this big story to look great and to be this big hero, where they would have made a huge mistake is the story of the empty tomb was broke by women. And the thing with the women is that they couldn't 
no one would believe their testimony. They wouldn't have, you know, they couldn't give an account in court. There's all this kind of stuff. And so literally to break this story through women is a terrible way for them to start this in their time. That's one way that people just say, if they were making this up, they went about it the wrong way. And then one of the biggest pieces of evidence that we have is of course the empty tomb. The fact that the tomb was empty. There is no stone, there is no person. The thing is with the authorities and with the people and with people being the, the land people, if they would have gotten the body and run off and buried him somewhere, or if they would have got on a boat and traveled across water and dumped him in the water somewhere, those type things would have been seen. You know, it's not like, hey, there's this tomb that we're gonna put this Messiah in that everybody's paying attention to, and then no one's gonna be around it. There was probably so much publicity and stuff all around it. So there's no way that they got him and dumped him somewhere. And again, people would have noticed. And not only that, the authorities would have sent, and you know that they did. They would have sent people looking because the body is everything. If we could get the body, if we could prove that he's still dead, then, but they couldn't prove that he was dead because he even showed up later alive. One thing that's so cool is they had this tradition uh, when you would go to a meal it was this thing called the folded napkin theory. And so Jesus would go to a place and he'd have a meal and you would fold your napkin in a specific way and you would push it to the front of the table. And it simplified, I enjoyed my time and I'll be back. Do you know if you read the scripture when they give the description about the tomb, do you notice that some scholars believe when they describe, they didn't just say that his grave clothes were laying. They say that they were folded. And some scholars believe the way that Jesus folded his grave clothes was the same way you would at the table. Like Jesus was simplifying, hey, I enjoy my time here, but I'll be back. I'm coming for you. Somebody say amen. So awesome. And so the empty tomb, it's everything. Even if Jesus made that symbolic message, like just what a brilliant, brilliant thing. I'll close with this thought here. There's a couple things that Jesus did that again, just prove, I don't know where I'm at on time. Thankfully, we ordered a new clock. Okay, everybody says you're fine. And then later, they're like, it was terrible. Our kids were on fire. <laughs> Children's director was like, we had 18 naked kids when service got out. We didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, but Jesus did these things. Not only glorious resurrection. Oh, and the tomb is empty and all this kind of stuff. But then he showed up on the scene. He made appearances to people. And people say, well, it was hallucinations and everybody was weird and whatever. Five, 500 people give an account in history that even atheists don't argue that there's an account of about 500 people that gave witness one of our pieces of evidence. 500 people gave this witness of seeing Jesus. Now, even if you've been to a really good party, 500 people don't hallucinate and see the same thing. And it was over a 40-day period. Uh, so again, just another way here that this is the thing, this happened. So Jesus shows up on the scene, but then he also says, hey, touch my hands. Like, I want you to know that this is a thing. And even now, Jesus is saying to you, I want you to know this is a thing. Me being out of the tomb and this resurrection power that happened then, it's a thing now. And I want it to be a part of your life, amen? The other theory is they say, uh, how dumb would it have been for all the disciples to make up this whole story and then to die for a lie? Because they all did terrible deaths that they incurred over a lie, over a thing that they made up to make themselves look good. They certainly didn't get rich over it because they spent a lot of the time on, on, on the run and in hiding and in persecution. So to make up this big hero story, 
all for a lie, it just doesn't happen. That many, somebody would have broke of all of them and said, I don't want, I don't, I'm not gonna die for this, this, and spill, and they didn't because it's a truth, it's a thing. Do you know that right now, if we presented this evidence in a court of law, they say that there's enough evidence of the resurrection that literally in our court system, they would pass this evidence as truth. There's enough evidence of the resurrection that it would be found true in our court of law. Historians use the book of Acts to still discover land in places because it's so accurately true and it's a thing, amen? As much as we love to talk about the resurrection and we love to talk about heaven and all the glory of that, most of the Easter story, I would argue, has more to do with hell. It has to do with our savior coming down and our God going all in, all in, to make sure we don't go a place called hell. Jesus spoke more about hell in scripture than he did heaven. Why? Because it's a place that he doesn't wanna see his loved ones. And so he came and the scripture says in Revelation that he went to hell and he defeated it so that we don't have to be a part of it. It doesn't have to be an option in our life. Here on earth, we don't have to be entrapped in places of hell. And then in eternity, we don't have to be trapped in places of hell because Jesus defeated it through his death on the cross. So while it's fun to talk about resurrection and heaven and all that kind of stuff, it's more important for us as a church to talk about this place that we don't wanna see you go, hell. And so what's beautiful about God is that he said this, of course, we read John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his son, he went all in that you may have eternal life, that you don't have to experience hell, that you don't have to experience eternity perishing. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that we may have eternal life, that we should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life, because God wants you in heaven. He wants you in eternal life and he did everything that he could to keep you from hell. So how do I stay out of hell? What's the point? The point is we must believe that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, but then we have to believe that he's our savior and that he bought us from hell, that he bought us from that place and that we can spend eternity with him. And some of us in here, we might not have had that connection. We might not be in a place where we go, man, I, I haven't acknowledged that. I haven't chose him as my Lord and savior. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he said this in Romans 10, 9, or the scripture says this in Romans 10, 9. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A couple verses later, it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a prayer that a lot of people, including myself, call very simple because it is very simple. It's a simple prayer where you say, Lord, I choose you. God, I choose you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died and rose again. And today I choose you as my Lord and Savior. Literally, the scripture says your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven. You have eternity with him. Essentially, you're partnering with the resurrection and with Easter and with all of this, you, you're joining in on that. So would you all stand to your feet? We're gonna have a time of prayer here in a minute, but I want everybody in here to bow their heads and close their eyes. There's this great thought that says, I would rather live my life believing there is a God and find out that there isn't than live my life believing there isn't a God and find out that there is. So for you in here, if you say, man, I, I, I need to make that decision. I, I see the truths. I see what God has done for my life. I see 
that, yeah, this isn't a fairy tale or a myth. This is a thing, as I've been saying. And you say, yeah, count me in on this. I wanna get in. I wanna be a Christ follower. What I'm gonna do is you're not gonna be embarrassed. You're not gonna be called forward, nothing like that. But all I'm gonna have you do is when you count to three, when I count to three, I'm gonna have you raise your hand right where you are. And then all of us together are gonna pray out what some people call the sinner's prayer or the prayer of salvation. But right where you are, you're gonna do that. You're gonna do what this verse says in Romans. You're just gonna declare him as Lord and Savior, and then you're gonna choose to follow him. But we're all gonna do it together in a way to support you. So if you're in here and you say, that's me, I wanna be in on that prayer. I wanna make Jesus Lord of my life with nobody looking around. When I count to three, raise your hand. One, two, three, raise up your hand. Say, count me in that. I see that hand. I see that hand back there in that one. Anybody else? Jump in on this. If you put it, I see that hand too. And what a great day, Easter, to make a decision like this. Anybody else? Just slip it up or wave it. Cool. Thank you, everybody who raised your hand. Also, if you're here and you say, I couldn't raise my hand, but I wanna be a part of that. If that's you here, you can pray this prayer. And like Romans says, if you believe it in your heart and you confess it with your mouth, it'll work the same. So even if you didn't have the boldness to raise your hand, you can still get in on this now. So let's all say this. Let's say, God, today I choose you as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.